Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. ES Audio. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio, Supported by Fuller's London Pride. Official beer of Premiership Rugby. Support with pride. Hello and welcome to the Evening Standards Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride. I'm Lawrence Delalio, and with me again this week is Evening Standard Rugby correspondent, thankfully, Nick Puriwell, and we couldn't keep him away after popular demand. He's back again, Steve Cording. Hello to you both. Morning, Lawrence. Hello, morning. Morning, morning. Uh, and listen, we're delighted to have a very familiar face joining us from the other side of the world. A former player whose club career saw him play with the Brumbies, the Waratahs, Ulster and Bath. He achieved 34 test caps for the Wallabies. I think most of them under Eddie Jones. It's, of course, Justin Harrison. Justin, thanks for coming on. How are you, fella, over there? Very good. Thanks, everyone. Good to see you. I'm keeping my screen to a minimal size, though, because I've never actually enjoyed being up close and personal with you, Loz. So um, here we are. <laughs> you're on a mark, eh? Listen, you're a good man, and I really do appreciate you coming on. We just had a big snowfall here. When I say a big snowfall, um, you know what the UK is like. It's about three centimetres, uh, but it has thrown <laughs> the country into complete and utter chaos. Uh, I was with uh, Brian O'Driscoll and Craig Doyle last night. They were gloating that they were heading off to the airport, and they got stuck on the motorway for the entire evening. Um, so they slept in the back of a car, if not the back of a hotel, for about 12 hours. That's how crazy this country is. Uh, where are you at the moment? Are you in Sydney? Are you in, are you in Brisbane? Where are you? Listen, I'm sure that the bod wasn't slumming it either just quietly and the Irish Royal Motorhome would have been travelling along there. I'm pretty sure he didn't slum it, lads. But uh, I am in Maroubra in Sydney and, you know, conversely, if the nation stands still when it snows up there, it seems to stand still when it rains here or when there's a bushfire or someone's taken by a shark. So that happens a fair bit around my neck of the woods. <laughs> um, I was always surprised, I tell you, my time in Europe, Northern Ireland, up in Belfast, it seemed to me that it rained every single day there. I was there for three years, right? And every single day, someone seemed to be surprised that it was raining again. <laughs> Hang on, you got this wrong. Are you supposed to be surprised if it's not raining? But not sure enough. Oh, sure, right. It's raining again, you know, and shrugs came out. So, um, yeah, down here, it's it's a surprise if it rains. Today was a torrential downpour for about five minutes to uh, stop the city, but we had a 27-degree day for the rest of it. So it was good. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Steve, you've been busy again as well. You've been partying, I understand. Yeah, I have to confess it was a three-year-old soft play party. Not quite uh, living the high life as yet, but unfortunately had to go along uh, yesterday on Sunday nursing a hangover from Saturday night. We've got to mention it, the round ball, we lost. Obviously, we're out of the World Cup. Very disappointing. Boys did well, but um, got as far as they could go, I guess. So, yeah, 
so I had to put up with a load of screaming three-year-olds on Sunday, which was probably my penance uh, for watching the football and seeing us go out. We got further than Australia, but it is our national sport. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we, we did get further than Australia. I'll give you that. If you pay a team probably roughly, what, 11 times our national GDP, you'd want to hope you go further in the World Cup than the team we managed to get together, lad. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk about that later because I've been holding this burden with me that I was the man who gave away the last two penalties that sent the that our game in the World Cup final into extra time. And it's not until I watched the game again with Martin Johnson the other day that he actually gave away the penalties and he's, he's unleashed me of that burden. Thankfully, because it's normally me. It's normally me that sends everything into extra time, including a good night out, if I'm honest with you. Uh, Nick, how are you? You obviously watched the football. I mean, you know, no one really cares anymore. We've moved on. Looks like Gareth Southgate probably stay. What were you up to? Yeah, just similar watch of football. Caught up with some friends in the week, so it was good to sort of have it get into the Christmas spirit. Have a few beers, and that was good. Well, tell us about the fun bus. You were on the fun bus last week with Hendo and Jason, weren't you? Uh, I was actually, yes. So, um, so Justin, I mean, you know, our good friend Jason Leonard, we raised a lot of money, actually. Very sadly, Tom Smith passed away some time ago, uh, left his wife Zoe and three kids behind. We did what we had to, and we raised quite a bit of money for Tom and his family uh, before he passed. A couple of those... Uh, Auction prizes were going on a pub crawl with myself and Jason Leonard called the Fun Bus, where you get on a bus. Well, you get into the Duke's Head in Putney, drink a few beers, and then you get on the bus and you go to the Sun Inn in Barnes, then you drink another few more beers, and then you get on the bus again, and we end up in the Sun Inn in Richmond, and then you have a curry. So I mean, so that was my night with uh, Rob Henderson and Jason Leonard and about 30 blokes talking uh, a lot of rubbish or listening to uh, to us talk a lot of rubbish about rugby. But uh, yeah, good cause. And uh, yeah, known as the Fun Bus. That's Jason's nickname. So let's get straight into it. Uh, Justin, got a few questions for you. Came to rugby quite late, I would say. Probably most well-known for winning the Lions test for Australia, the third Lions test. On your own, obviously, by stealing the ball for the one and only Martin Johnson. Not many people get to do that, but you... uh, Made your debut in the third test in 2001. Obviously, I'd gone home a long time ago before, you know, you'd already beaten me for Australia A. I think you were the one that bleed my knee and finished me off and sent me back home on the plane. But you made your mark in that crucial line out in the 78th minute. Talk us through your, your Australian debut. And not many people that make their debut and, and do it by beating the Lions, British and Irish Lions. So uh, that's a pretty good start to your test career, isn't it? Well, that's a pretty lofty introduction. I, I look, there's circumstance and chance and opportunity. I'd spent the six weeks prior trying to navigate my way through to injuring either John Eels or David Giffen because they were the starting second rounds, you know, and I was disappointed to hear on Thursday they'd been named again. But then in the space of about 30 minutes, I got a phone call and um, Rod McQueen, who was the coach at the time, wanted me, uh, he, he had a very important job. He'd come down and meet me in the hotel room and said, listen, I've got a very important job, the management, you've been very good, Australia A, you know, you've given it to them up at um, Blue Tongue Stadium, it was called back then. Can you believe I was asked to be the water boy for the team? <laughs> I know we're under pressure. And uh, I thought, this is insane. I can't believe I'm going to take the field with the Wallabies as the water boy. And he gets up to leave. And I open the door. And David Giffen is standing in the hallway. And he says, Gook, which is me, uh, my nickname, Justin, uh, congratulations. I wanted to be the first to tell you, you're going to play for Australia against the British Irish Lions on Saturday night. And I said, well, well mate, that's a pretty shit joke because... Rob McQueen has just told me I'm the water boy, mate, so you're too late. Beat it. 
And he said, oh, no, it's Rod McQueen there, is he? The management are trying to contact him because I've just failed a hamstring test and I've been ruled out. And they're trying to find Rod McQueen to find you to tell you that you're in the test team. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> 10 minutes later, the phone rings again and Rod McQueen summons me up to his room, up to his presidential suite there. And uh, he starts the same spiel, everything. Same, you've been really popular. You're a great member of the team. And the last sentence is, congratulations, you're going to start for all the Wallabies against the British and Irish Lions, mates. And at the time, I thought, well, you know, water boy to, to starting isn't too bad. And he said to me just before I left the room, we don't want you to tell anyone, though. And I thought, well, okay. So the distance from his door to the elevator is about 27 metres. I rung about 640 people, I reckon. That's what I'm hearing now. I don't know that many people. I just was randomly calling people on my phone and telling them that Justin Harrison's going to play and I think you should get down there and have a look. And then, well, at the time, I also thought that it was, you know, he didn't want me to tell anyone because he thought I was like some sort of secret weapon, you know, where you'd still name David Giffen, but this six foot eight praying mantis had run out and Martin Johnson and Keith Wood and Hilly and all those blokes had just absolutely lose it seeing that I was starting. Uh, in hindsight, it's um, clearly I was possibly a weak link to the team. And then again, history will show that I was lucky enough, mate, to win a one-out. Every time I see that clip, it just tells me how lucky. So many th Keith Wood threw it so low, it almost hit me. In the That was a good throw for Woody, actually, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably one of his best, to be fair. But it bounced off my hand, off my knee, into my inner thigh, back up to my hands. And Jono was trying to pull my head off and... Yeah, very lucky, mate. Very lucky. Gave us a real indication of the of the power of that group, though, because pretty much the nucleus of that team came down two years later and yeah. took the World Cup off us. So, um, you know, I got stumped at a, at a dinner one time. Someone stuck their mid up and said, what would you prefer, to, to win the Lions like that or win the World Cup? Which one would you give up? And I, I couldn't with any real conviction answer it properly. I, I, I didn't know which one I'd you know, my first test and winning, and that was that's fantastic. But then, of course, mate, I don't need to tell you what I, what, you know, winning a World Cup would have been pretty special too. So I'm just not sure about that yeah. that answer. Well, listen, it's a great introduction, that's for sure. And you played another 33 times for Australia. Just speaking about not phoning anyone, I mean, you must have phoned your dad because you came to rugby pretty late. I'd like to think most parents have quite an influence on your decisions, certainly some of your better ones anyway. And uh, <laughs> was your dad and mum a big part of that? And you would have spoken to him much first, would you? Yeah, they, yeah, they were, mate. Yeah, that's a, you know, as a terrified father of two young boys at the moment, I can only imagine what he would have felt. He was the catalyst for me joining a rugby team at the age of 19. I'd never played. I was brought up in the Northern Territory. So, you know, the sport of staying alive was pretty much all I really played up there. And uh, I rung him and he was pretty emotional. And after the game, you know, it was it was one of those moments where you, you're happy to hug your old man in, in public and shed a tear and thank him for some of the things that you don't often get a chance to thank your parents for. Quite often we forget, you know. So that was a very special moment for us, for sure. Of all those games you played, what was your favourite moment for Australia? It's difficult, you know, I'm sure you've reflected and many of us do on sometimes when they've got some time to look back. You know, there's a litany of achievements and things and most often the sorrow of disappointment, you know, and the galvanising effect that's had on teammates around you. So, you know, losing that World Cup was a poignant moment in my life, but winning a Bledisloe and the, and the Testo Boo, 
you know, you can't put best or most prevalent in, in that history. Although what I can bookend it with is the first is, of course, memorable. And then at the time, I didn't realise it was going to be, but my last was in 04 at Twickenham. Actually, when we beat England, um, we managed to beat you blokes um, in Brisbane on tour and then again at Twickenham back over there. So I, remembering those two tests is probably pretty important. But um, I think most of the time now, I, I'm just rejoicing in the fact that I have a different lens on people I took the field against. You know, everyone was my mortal enemy when I took the field. I was really drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, that how dare they try and take on my nation and hurt my teammate. And I was just wanting to throw myself at anyone with as much as I could. Now I'm quite enjoying knowing that they're actually going through the same thing as I am now and, and human and uh, men and women in their own right navigating through a whole part of their life that isn't finished with them yet. So uh, that's actually been probably one of the most rewarding things too, Gloss. Yeah, now you realise actually that uh, everyone's pretty much the same. Um, listen, Eddie, Eddie, uh, has, Eddie Jones has gone. He's departed as head coach of England. Well, he's never, never gone, Eddie Jones. Let's no, you know, well, no, well, that, that, that is very yeah. true. And listen, we take no comfort in that, uh, even though he seems to think that the English media have always had it in for him. Uh, he lasted one year longer than he lasted as coach of Australia. He was six years as coach of Australia. Uh, he's been here seven years. And I think um, we would be the first to say that uh, the first three or four years of that tenure were actually uh, pretty impressive, as they were when he coached Australia, funnily enough. Mm. And uh, I did interview him about two years into his coaching role in with England. And I said to him, Eddie, it's going really well. I said, I have looked back at your coaching career. And I said, you came very close to winning a World Cup with Australia. Just apart from that uh, that little Johnny Wilkinson fella, you probably would have won it. Then things went a bit wrong and you had two years after that and you got sacked by the ARU. I said, what happened? He said, oh, mate, I stayed too long. He said, I won't make that same mistake again. And here we are, you know, sort of seven years into his reign. And he did stay a bit too long and he did make that same mistake again. And he'd been sacked by the RFU. What would you say to that for initially? I mean, it's, it's not easy when you coach the same group of players over a period of time. And secondly, given that rugby union is not exactly uh, the first sport that you read about in the papers in Australia, what, what's been the reaction over in Australia to Eddie's sort of parting of company? Oh, look, you know, I think that Eddie is a very, very well-established technician of the game, motivator of humans, soul searcher of, of reasoning, and very good at, at articulating what you need to do to be the best you can be on the field in a game plan that he's puts together solely on the back of understanding the DNA of what he's dealing with. So, you know, we're not surprised that people have reacted the way they have to the performance of England in the short term. What is glaring is that, you know, the most, the winningest coach in England's history before a crucial stage of the building platform towards a World Cup performance has been extinguished. And, you know, I think not just England, but anyone who hopes to try and achieve something in a, in a World Cup cycle needs planning, you know, two to two and a half years out. All those sorts of timeframes become really important. The cycle, the ingress of talent. You know, England doesn't have the same loss of talent that Australia does. In every World Cup cycle, we have, you know, circa 500 test caps walk offshore and go overseas. And Eddie would have had a plan two and a half years ago for his squad that's going to take the field just about um, during that World Cup next year. And that's probably more the alarming thing. The, the abruptness of the decision that doesn't seem attached to a viable solution at the moment. It's very alarming when you see a coach 
who's got IP through and through for the organization exited and someone is put in as an interim coach. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say the, the timing, the timing is unusual and strange in the cold light of day. There's probably a few people here that said, well, if you were going to do something like that, why did you not do it two years ago when results were equally as bad as they, as they have been? Um, I mean, Eddie's always talked about a world cup cycle and he's got a big plan and I've no doubt he had a plan with England of what to do in a world cup, but I mean, we've lost to Scotland three of the last four times now. Now, Scotland are okay, but finished fifth out of sixth in the last two Six Nations, which is sort of unacceptable, I'm afraid. No, look, that's noted. And, you know, you understand the importance of that Six Nations when you start to articulate that, you know. And it's not just a win-loss ratio when it comes to Six Nations. What I think I did learn and became acutely aware of over there when I was playing for Ulster and for Bath is the history of the game goes further back and is far more meaningful than win-loss ratios and, and Calcutta Cups. It's national pride. And to have anything that's subpar for a consistent amount of time, and you're talking about back-to-back years of underperformance for Beaver, then that that's telling. And, and, you know, coaching, unfortunately, is fickle. And, you know, the hierarchy will soon come under examination. But the first thing that a hierarchy does to protect itself is start to look for exit strategies for their coaches. Goo, do you think it'd be a good move for um, Rugby Australia to bring him back? Hamish McClellan quoted this weekend as saying that they need to weaponise these events for Australia. What Australia needs to understand is itself first. We're still uh, reconciling what our style of play and who we are and what squad we need to produce to be successful. One of the things the Northern Hemisphere Tour did for us was tell us that we've got a forward pack that's able to take it to some of the best Northern Hemisphere sides uh, in the world built on forward dominance and winning and securing ball. You need that for a World Cup campaign as well. But we're still unsure about what it is to be a Wallaby and where you see that style of play come through. And we're a bit confused about being, are we tactically astute or are we picking athletes that want to attack all the time? If we can understand that and we can understand what we need to see fill the jersey, then we can start to understand what sort of person we need to construct that clay model. We know that Eddie Jones has been one of the best at arriving and understanding the fabric of what it takes for a nation to be successful inside a different style of game plan, right? So he's not just a Gatlin ball merchant. He's not a, you know, a Woodward one style only. He can manipulate and change. And because look at his evidence by his journey, you know, Australia, you know, we changed the way that, that we played from the Rod McQueen era into the 03 World Cup. And then he went to Japan, single-handedly built the foundation for which they're well-renowned for now and took South Africa to the 07 World Cup and gave them some rugby nows. You know, South Africans now are playing rugby because they've started to understand it's not just about looking for the biggest impact and picking the biggest person. You know, he's that sort of coach. And also he needs to be a coach that's able to achieve a lot more with a lot less. Now he's been coming out of an environment which is resource rich. Um, you know, you have a dearth of player talent and you have local-based competitions that you can see rugby week in and week out. You can see test players against test players all the time. We don't have that luxury down here and we certainly don't have the wallet um, to pursue it. So that starts to point towards someone like Eddie Jones sitting in a reasonably senior position. But of course, the first question you ask when you've been asked to sort of go in in any sort of senior position is what is my level of authority? You know, and that's always the concern for Eddie. He doesn't suffer fools. He doesn't like to have to think that someone else is able to expect that he's answerable to them. He's very happy to be a partner with them. And, and Well, don't worry about that because in England, he had every level of authority required, really. In fact, the, the whole issue was that there was no checks and uh, measures in place. It's not a problem when you're winning. Uh, no one raised that issue with Eddie Jones when in the first three years when England were winning. 
These things only become an issue when you start losing games. And I don't think Eddie's ability as a coach is ever in doubt. I think he's a great innovator. I think he does some amazing things. But I just think it's so much of a harder job now managing players. And what has become very clear is that Eddie doesn't trust very many people. <laughs> and, and therefore, uh, if players don't do what you know do, do what he wants, he, he doesn't hold on to them very long. He just gets rid of them. Justin, you touched on 07. Do you think a similar role to the, the one he took with South Africa in 07 would suit Australia between now and the World Cup then? Given that he, the Springboks were saying he sort of came in and just examined where they could get better and they were very grateful for him doing that. And he made some you know recommendations that were taken on. Would that kind of be the kind of thing that might work? Dave Rennie's got a plan, though. I will say that. I will say that, you know, you, there's three points that change the win-loss ratio over the Northern Hemisphere. There's five seconds that change um, beating um, New Zealand in Melbourne. We're not a team that is badly led by a coach that doesn't have a plan. And I would say that in 07, the reaction to Eddie was more about who the head coach was uh, and the, the appetite that the players had to onboard that so you've got to be able to make a difference is there if there's a difference to be made. I don't think that Eddie would necessarily work in an environment, you know, where there was a coach that has got his own plan and has to has to sort of change direction. Um, and it's it's dangerous to hypothesize as well, mate. But you know, I think that anyone with that sort of rugby excellence and pedigree, Australia are doing due diligence. And of course, it's appeared in the in the media that our chairman, Hamish McLennan, has has had a conversation with him. So you know, that's all you can expect at this stage. Um, and they've also come out and said that they're, they're very supportive of Dave Rennie. And, and, and I've got to say that, you know, what he has done for some of the players here and started to develop some of the ingredients that we expect as a wallaby are starting to come through. Well, listen, there's no one that's better placed to tell us that than you because you've, you know, you're, you're as close to any of the current wallaby players as, as anyone in the game. So uh, we, we fully take that on board and, uh, and accept that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio, supported by Fuller's London Pride, official beer of Premiership Rugby. Justin, I just want to talk to you about your 2003 World Cup final experience. We know about the result. We know about the game. We know about the, the hurt that that causes, etc. I've lost a World Cup final as well. Everyone takes losing badly. Some people, you know, worse than others. 
you were obviously pretty angry with the runners-up medal, but uh, just fill us in on what happened because a lot of people won't know that. Well, look, I, I know that England players were probably chastised for mistreating their silver medal when they were presented, but I didn't appreciate its value at the time, let's say, because it, it felt like a bit of a bit of an albatross around my neck, a weight, a burden, a, a real representation of failure uh, in my mind. It was everything that I didn't want it to be. It was the wrong colour. It was the wrong medal. It was the wrong colour and it was the wrong position for me to receive it. Um, and so that night, a few beers on board, of course, and I, I got down to the harbour and I asked, Muhammad Ali is a bit of a, a hero of mine. And of course, politically, it's much more supercharged his reasoning for throwing his gold medal into the river. But I um, figured, right, I'm going to have my, my Muhammad Ali moment. So full of bravado and, and vitriol, I threw my medal into the Sydney Harbour down at Cockle Bay there. Actually, you would, yeah, just down near um, Cargo Bay. You boys were up there celebrating and I was down there throwing my medal into the drink. So, yeah, very, very um, upsetting to go through that and then throw it. But, uh, you know, we regretted it almost immediately, but uh, it was gone then. That was I figured, right, that's it, that's done. What changed? What happened? Well, mate, what happened was it's a, almost a bit of Stockholm Syndrome happening here because Mr Judge Jeff Blackett, Your Honour, the sir uh, who's the ex-chief disciplinary officer of the RFU, who's your ex-president, just recently retired, he and I had come to know each other a little bit from my time in Bath and... Uh, <laughs> We'd become mates enough to have an email here and there. He came and visited us in France and we tested the, the worth of a few rosé bottles. And um, he had heard me recount this story and my regret at having done it. And unbeknownst to me, that he put in action uh, a plan to get the get the medal, a replica of the medal, recast and redone. Bill Beaumont, Hamish McClellan, the chairman, CEO, Andy Marinos, Bill Sweeney was involved as well. And I um, went along to the, the cargo bar during the England series this year for an interview about England, I thought. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, Judge Jeff Blackett appears in an English shirt. And I thought, oh, great. They've got bloody a Pommy fan to come and sing, learning, in front of me or something. <laughs> I thought, right, I'm going to have a stink here. I'll take my watch off. But um, he, um, it was Judge Jeff Blackett and he pulled out a medal. He pulled out the medal or replica and um, and presented it with me. I, yeah, very, um, wow, what a, what a moment. I remember coming home and showing the boys. I showed them during the interview as well. We rung them up. But when they were away, actually, in, in Ireland, when they came home, they were pretty happy to see the medal. And it probably made me realise how important those keepsakes are, no matter what colour. It's a beautiful story. Um, any of the boys showing any uh, any any talent? Of, uh, I mean, presumably they're fly halves and, and wingers that take after their mother, <laughs> do they? Well, the two Linguinis, 12 and 10. Thankfully, the only part of my genetic trait that I've given them is a bit of height. The rest is down to their South African mother you know and i um i'm pleased to, to see or it appears to to see that they have not inherited any of my lack of coordination nor ability they've they've got equal parts i bet they have listen i must talk to you about your role now uh, which is as the ceo of the australian rugby players association player welfare quite rightly is much more high profile these days what are the fundamental challenges that you see in Australia or maybe across the game? And what is it you, as the, the CEO, their CEO, what do you want to try and achieve in your term, if you like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, mate. I, you know, look, there's, there's going to be the constants. So the, the two main wheelhouse events that rugby union plays say, in any association, industrial framework, employment conditions, and then also vocational aspect of what it means to be a rugby player and the opportunity costs that you have. So education, job placement, career transition, and the ability to understand how you're, you're a commodity for a small amount of time and leverage that into, in large part, the, the next two thirds of your life. 
But if I was to try and pinpoint one thing, I think that the game at the moment is wrestling with the idea of player welfare as being priority and paramount. But then also, how do we try to marry that and how do we bring it into the commercial requirements of the game? You know, we know that the commercial requirements and the, the appetite and fan immersion and broadcast interaction are all talking about speeding the game up more time with ball in play, less stoppages, more players um, making hero moments on the field, more interaction and revealing more about the player than we've ever known or seen before. And then we talk about the welfare and that's definitely counterintuitive to what we talk about when we say welfare, you know, health and safety, preparation, framework of of safety guidelines, referee adjudication, rule-checking, Um, making sure that players are mentally protected from the intrusions of social media. We make sure that they're not too exposed at such an early age. You know, we need to remind ourselves that professional athletes don't inherit moral virtue just by the fact that they're signing a contract. But what we do see sometimes is, is it coming together reasonably close to what we're trying to achieve. So things like what are the rule changes that are already there that we can speed the game up, you know, um, increasing or adjudicating more diligently from when the try is scored to when you're kicking the conversion, jogging to all the lineups, um, 30 seconds to be set for the scrum. These are all existing laws that we can do without tampering with the fabric of the game, which is contesting for the ball and having this wonderful scrum and contest and mall and idea of all those sorts of Things And then we start to talk about what is this high tackle framework thing that we're doing and why are we doing it? We know that we're doing it to arrest the behavior of players. Now, the, the only way we can do that is to get at the gatekeeper of their lives. The gatekeeper of their lives is the coach. He's the one who designs the training field. He's the one that Monday to Friday has them for the majority of their athletic life, then gives them the tools to play a certain way on Saturday and tells them to play that certain way. Now, you can't arrive on Saturday and say, we want to play fast, but we want to do it legally and we want everyone to tackle below the hips if they've done none of that during the week. And so then we think, right, how do we influence the coach to make sure they don't do it too often? Well, we start to introduce red cards to influence the result of the game, which is counterintuitive to the commercial fan immersion piece, right? So we lose fans because we're trying to make the game safer. How do we change that? We start to talk about now 20-minute red card with an ability or an ability to say, right, that's definitely yellow. Lawrence, you've taken Gook's head off there, but we're not sure if it's a red. So while you're off, we're going to have a look in the background at some video footage. The game's still going, so we're not losing the fans. You guys are still down a player, so you're still affecting the result. The coach is going to have to have a look at his tackle technique drill on Tuesday. In the background, there's a there's a referee, you know, Barnsley's on the TV, having a look if, to see if it's met the red card threshold. If it's met the red card, he stays off. But we get to bring another player on to not affect the result of the game. So now we've got a player who's going to get sanctioned in front of the judiciary. We've had a coach that's riding the knife edge between 10 and 20. And we've got a team that's got a power play opportunity for 10, maybe 20 minutes. We've then forced a change. You're down a player on the reserves bench, so you're introducing fatigue. You also don't affect the result of the game in a World Cup final by having 14 on 15. You've got 15 on 15. Now we're starting to talk about a bit of a meshing of commercial interest versus welfare versus pragmatism versus the game does need to go somewhere to adapt to this increasing requirement and appetite for less judicial involvement, player safety and fan immersion. Not sure if I've articulated that as well as you wanted me to, Loss, but that's my. No, that's listen, you, it's you've got a few. I mean, there's they are the challenges that we we all experience. Listen, we could talk for hours, but we're going to move on to a couple of other little things. I, I want to ask you some questions at the end, which I do with all my guests, which is a bit more lighthearted, a bit more fun. But uh, 
Uh, let's have a little look at the uh, the weekend's rugby. We've had this thing called the, the Champions Cup that started. You'll know all about that. Steve, do you want to do a little roundup for us? As long as you don't talk about the Ulster-style results, Steve, I'll be all right. I was going to ask you to comment on that, Goog. Is that, is that not a good thing? No, probably not. Uh, we'll bounce back. It's quite hard yeah. to get zero in a game of rugby, isn't it? It's quite hard. <laughs> but, uh, it well, is it was quite a, hard to do that. It was certainly a crazy weekend, wasn't it? I mean, we, we used to watching four games a weekend and we had games all over the place. I mean, it was not a great one for your relationship to be watching rugby all weekend, but there we go. So we had 12 games in the Champions Cup. Uh, in terms of Prem teams, there's wins for Gloucester, Exeter, Sale, Saracens, Leicester. Irish, Quinns and Northampton all lost, but we also had wins in the Challenge Cup for Bristol, but defeats for Bath and Newcastle. Nick, you were trying to keep warm yesterday at Saracens. Owen Farrell said their performance was at best average. How did you think they got on? Yeah, I see that. But I think they got there in the end. You know, Mike McCall had spoken in the week about the sort of starting again with it, their first Champions Cup match for 35 months after relegation and everything else. And uh, talking about how long it took them to to go on the sort of journey of, of winning the competition last time with the, the near misses that they'd had and it's not really a total fresh start, but it's 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 not far off it. And so they're kind of just acclimatising to the standard again. But Elliot Daly, I thought, was excellent. And uh, a couple of moments of magic from him, and it kind of did the trick, really. Lol, do you want to talk about Friday night? Zach Mercer, England's next captain at the World Cup, came back, looked superb. In the cold there as well. Yeah, I was at London Irish. Everyone keeps telling me uh, what a great stadium it is, um, what a great experience it is. It's a much better experience when your team wins. I know that much. But no, listen, I, I really enjoyed it. Creevy got sent off uh, early on for a, exactly the point that Justin was making earlier on, just trying to change behaviours. It was a lazy tackle from him. You know, he won't have um, been pleased with himself, but that changed the nature of the game. And then Zach Mercer has just been enjoying his rugby. I mean, when you're getting beaten every week, life, I mean, I'd, I'd seriously think about another career. And he did. Um, he, he just decided to go to France. He was playing for Bath. And, and then he's gone to Montpellier you know, top 14 player of the season. I mean, as a forward, I guess his his sort of work ethic would have meant that he wants to win every game. Uh, then he's a, he's turned out to be a French champion with Philippe Saint-André. And look, there's a couple of good players playing in France that, that will be part of England's future, no doubt. He's one of them. Uh, I think Tom Willis is another uh, who's gone to Bordeaux. Two out-and-out number eights, as I see it. Don't play them at flank. They're, they're, these guys know how to play number eight. They're footballers. Yeah, look, there's there's plenty of competition and we'll see what what happens when they uh, both return. But a, a good start for Montpellier, I think. Leinster and La Rochelle were the two standout performers in the competition. No great surprise there. They both competed in the final last year. I think Toulouse weren't too far behind them, getting that crucial away win in Munster, which is never easy. It was hard for us to even see the game, let alone uh, see what was going on. Um, so, yeah, really good start to the comp and uh, let's see how it progresses from here. One word answer then. South African teams included, good or bad. Lawrence? Uh, look. One word. Well, it's good. Good for now. You've got to, you've got to experiment, haven't you, really? Um, you've got to have a look and see what these things do, you know. Nick, are you going to try and get a trip over to South Africa? That's a good idea <laughs> for you if you can get there. Nope. I don't think that'll be on the cards, to be quite honest with you. Um, but um, no, I think this all comes back to the global calendar and the reshaping of everything that comes with it. And really, everyone involved has got to make a decision on what happens when and why and uh, stick to it and push through in the long term. Because if South Africa are going to be moving around, then 
they need to find a proper home. And, uh, you know, we were only talking the other week about the, the sort of glory days, if you like, of Super Rugby and, and Tri-Nations. And we would sit on and watch that and kind of marvel at it. Well, that almost didn't need changing, really. Maybe uh, some of the Test Nations in the Northern Hemisphere will benefit from playing South Africa more, more frequently. But equally, maybe it just gets a bit stale. So let's hope that they finally find a solution to this global calendar. Either actually do it or shelve it entirely so that the game can move on. Listen, we're going to do the outstanding piece of the the pod now. Outstanding. Supported by Fuller's London Pride. Justin, you probably wouldn't have watched all those games, but so it's a bit unfair to, to ask you, but if there's one player who's been outstanding on the European tour for Australian rugby, who would that player have been? Who got some real growth and development out of it? And just give us a, a, a good 10 seconds on who you think is the next star of Australian rugby. Marky Mark on the wing, no win to Wasi. He's pretty candy. But, mate, I, I, you know what? I'm going to take us back. I want to give a rap to James Slipper because he's been thrown into captaincy. He played probably the best international year I've ever seen him play. He's a tight forward. We've never seen a tight forward win rugby player of the year, international player of the year, and all those sorts of things. He's playing like he's a 24-year-old at the age of 33-odd. Mate, I've got to say, and, and to go on a Northern Hemisphere and do what he did in Northern Hemisphere Tour, Five tests back-to-back against very, very good um, teams. He didn't play against Italy, but, mate, he's very handy. Fantastic. Nick, who's your outstanding player? I'd probably say Daly for his match-winning interventions at, at Saris. You know, we all know he can't do that without what happens up front. But, yeah, it's uh, proved his point again in terms of his continued class. Steve, I mean, I, I would say that, that there were some stellar performances. Gary Ringrose, debuters for Exeter. Arno Botha, I thought, um, for Leon was outstanding, even though he sounded like he should have been playing for one of those South African teams. I'm going to go with Tom Willis in a losing Bordeaux side. I thought he was magnificent. And uh, it's good to see a couple of English guys picking up a bit of French coin instead of the other way around. Yeah, sorry it was against Ulster, but I'll give special mention to Rob Dupree. I thought he was fantastic again, but my outstanding goes to Anthony Watson. If you've not seen that try last night against the Ospreys, Superb. And I think given the timing of Steve Borthwick, will he, won't he be named England head coach this week? Well, when he does, and I think there's a good chance we'll see Anthony Watson back in that England squad. Good choice. Justin, I want to ask you the the quickfire questions. Tackled. Supported by Fuller's London Pride. Your full name, please. Justin Brendan Gregory Harrison. Favourite takeaway? I don't often like takeaway, but anything with a, like a prawn linguine or a bit of Thai food would be That's classy. That sounds far too classy for an Australian. What are you talking <laughs> about there? <laughs> who was your celebrity crush? Mate, I do have one. I'm not sure you'd know who it is. Actress. It's an actress called Claudia Carvin. She's an Australian actress. So I'll sort of, you know, keep it local. She's uh, She still is. She's still cutting shapes. I'm, st- I'm probably still ho- holding a candle to her. Hopefully, I'll bump in here. On the- <laughs> okay, that's the photo. That's the photo you took off the wall behind you before we, before we <laughs> exactly. came on there. What was the last movie that you watched? Steve will account for this. The kids now are on the scene. Ten and twelve year old. I watched um, Super Pets last nice. night. And what is what do you have for breakfast? We can't see your waistline, but we know that we, normally when you were in Bath, I saw you. You had a full English nearly every day because the bloke who runs that. Little- <laughs> The bloke who runs that little greasy spoon told me that. He said, well, listen, yeah. when he's up early enough, he used to come in here for a full English. But what do you have for breakfast? Down the River Cafe, you're right. Um, yeah, I've got a bit of a pregnant snake physique at the moment. I actually don't have much, just coffee and I'm out the door. Everyone has a nickname. You've got you've got several. You told us a second ago what it was. The, 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 the more acceptable nickname is? Is Googie. Googie the bad egg. Googie yes. the bad egg. Googie, Googie egg. Mm. 
Now, listen, as someone who's giving out advice uh, for free to your players, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh, it's got to be my dad when he told me to join the rugby team at the age of 19 before I went to university. Um, you should join the rugby team. You might get some mates. What's your dad's name? Adrian. Adrian. He, my, my dad's name is Adrian Gregory Brendan Harrison. Lovely. That explains it. Well, listen, we thank him and for uh, for persuading you to join the rugby team. Um, who uh, is the most famous person in your phone book? Oh, wow. It's all relative, isn't it? Any any of the rugby royalties? I've got to get you know, George Gregg and you. I think you're in even in there, mate. Did you want me to say that? You're in my Listen, phone. after a few nights out with me, I'm surprised you haven't deleted me from your phone book. <laughs> I tried to last time I saw you in Hong Kong, but you tracked me down for I, now, so I keep finding a way of getting back in there. But, uh, yeah, Lauren's yeah, still there. Don't, don't, don't show them, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll, be, that'll be hacked by another three newspapers, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Listen, they've had a crack, mate. There's nothing, there's nothing that funny in my life don't worry about that uh, who would play you in a film about your life uh, any Bond villain <laughs> <laughs> any of those big guys and other than your good self uh, who is the funniest person that you know or who was the funniest person in and around the Australian rugby team when you were there was there someone that made everyone laugh Joe Roth definitely he was pretty sharp still is if he gets his hands on a microphone run for the door he's pretty handy <laughs> <laughs> and are you a are you a dog or a cat family or person? Dogs. We've got a little labradoodle. Actually, we've got a big labradoodle. He's now punching through the forty-one kilo mark. A little straight-haired labradoodle called Ralph. We had a great Dane in France as well. So yeah, I'm a big dog person. And uh, when, when Justin Harrison gets up on the mic himself and gets it off of Joe Roth, what does he sing? What is, what's his karaoke song? I sing Escape, Rupert Holmes. Beautiful. <laughs> I think I've heard. I think I've heard she sing that. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so, um, me escape. Yeah, there you go. Who's your ideal dinner party guest? Well, I've got a few. Well, actually, you know what? I'd, I'd love to have a, a few scoops with Ricky Gervais. Mm, yeah, he's a good man. Dave Chappelle, Sasha Baron Cohen, you know those blokes. Early John Cleese, sort of Forty Towers, John Cleese. That'd be pretty handy. Guys, that just make you laugh. Yeah. 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 Uh, who is, in your opinion, the best rugby player of all time? Best player was Jonah Lomu. Take, take the field against him. You know, there's no chance that you're even, you, you just took a ticket and watched. Um, most fearful, Jerry Collins. Yeah, God rest his soul. Listen, you played a lot of rugby all over the world. What was your proudest rugby moment? Oh, man, look, I'll get all nostalgic and grey now, but, you know, one of my proudest was watching actually my two boys play rugby now and luckily not be as uncoordinated as I am. But, I uh, look, I think you can't beat singing the anthem for the first time. I remember running out to Stadium Australia and thinking that every person in the world was at this, this avalanche of sound came through to me. Um, you know, I'd never sung the anthem out loud before, you know. It was just completely lost myself for that moment in time that's that's definitely one of the one of the best ones well listen congratulations it's a great way to end uh thanks for being our guest on the podcast this week we could talk to you for hours we so admire the work you're doing with the australian rugby union keep it going mate and uh, please don't delete my number because we have quite good fun when we go out so listen thank you good luck with everything and uh we look forward to seeing you very very soon cheers mate see you Stephen. nick thanks very much Lars. thanks very much take care mate so that's all for this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride. We'll be back next week with our final episode this year, so be sure to join us then. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio, supported by Fuller's London Pride, official beer of Premiership Rugby. 
Support with prize. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.